0: Good morning, good afternoon, good evening, and good night, wherever you are in the world. Welcome to another episode of World Endurance Chat. I'm Floodman11, and we're going to be talking about the two big events that have just passed us by, the Daytona 24-hour and the Bathurst 12-hour. So joining me for our talk about the Daytona 24-hour is Cookie Monster FL, How are you going, Cookie?
1: Hey, bud.
0: Well, under the weather,
1: so a little nasally, but uh, we'll make it through this episode, I think. How do you do,
0: I'm doing pretty swell. I'm sore because I've just come from soccer training, but I'm doing pretty swell. The realities of life and everything else. Anyway, um, we we get to talk motorsport, right? Yeah, yeah. It's been a, it's, uh, it's been a while for me. I think it's been
1: almost like two months for me. Almost, oh, wow. uh, yeah. oh,
0: yeah, it would so, be as well.
1: Yeah, I've missed a couple. But, uh, yeah, the Rolex 24 happened, so mm, yeah, that was uh, exciting to say the least. I think that was a lot of hype around there.
0: But Yeah, uh, it definitely a lot of hype. Definitely a lot of hype from us uh, at WEC and also from IMSA because you had two of the biggest names coming back to sports cars and this was kind of their debut event. I mean, Penske kind of did the Petit Le Mans, but with a different car, well, kind of different car, but yeah, still Penske and Acura, uh, Penske and Acura and Yost with Mazda making their returns um, to the top level of sports cars. And it was, it was an interesting race. I very much like the fact that we talked very much about the caution procedure and how it would be a caution heavy race. And it wasn't. There was like four cautions over the entire event. Right. Well, that was.
1: Uh. Yeah. That was. That was a really strange part about the whole thing to me. Uh. Is that everything? The, the the almost surefire like you know almost claim that we could all make was that there's going to be much more cautions because there was so much more prototypes. There's so many more people that I mean even if came from LMPC that were going into uh the DPI category, the prototype category. You know, for the faster speeds and everything that they were not going to be able to keep up. And we had the longest, we set the longest distance record. And by heaps, five.
0: by heaps. We were like past the distance record with two and a half hours to go or something. It was ridiculous. It's got to be, there's got to be a little bit of LMPC to this.
1: Yeah. <laughs> but I mean, it's got to be the caliber of drivers too. I, uh, prototype really fine. You could look at some of the, let, let's say the, the more privateer efforts for some of the like the, the P2 teams and point to some of those drivers and say hey those might be some question marks you had some youth uh, especially with united auto sports um but for the most part you had seasoned veterans who had won very very big endurance races in the, even the previous year um you know and some of those outfits have just, just showed up so you knew that there were you know world-class outfits there you had world-class drivers and a lot of those entries a lot of them um, had
0: and, former one drivers all-
1: yeah. Um, yeah. Either current LMP1 drivers, former LMP1, like factory LMP1 drivers. Um, I mean, Formula One drivers, NASCAR, IndyCar. I mean, it was just the the, the field was just loaded uh, with just a lot of really talented drivers. And luckily, all of the talent stayed
0: on the track and didn't go off. So... Hmm. And I think I mean, a part, part of that as well is, I mean, we looked to last year and the awful conditions we had in the middle of the race. We didn't actually have that that too much of an issue this year with the conditions. It was very, you know, classic sort of endurance racing. There wasn't anything to worry about in terms of the track or the weather or lower class cars getting in the way. It, it, was, it was a little scary. I didn't think I've seen this at, in any IMSA race before. <laughs> Well, I mean, we there
1: was a little bit of a rain that that came down and in, in the afternoon and evening that uh, definitely damped everything up, and I think got it to the point where people were switching to to wets. But beyond that, I mean, yeah, you didn't have the consistent wet conditions, hmm. and you certainly didn't have the long standing, you know, um, at you know even atmospheric conditions. It was it was pretty decent. I mean, you had mid seventies uh, or or lower seventies on Saturday, um, and so it was. It's definitely, I mean, f- for the past previous years, it's atypical to, to just be that comfortable almost down there in that kind of weather. It's almost Sebring esque. Yeah, it just, again, it, was, I, it felt like all the teams are really comfortable. And I think the extra effort that was put in for all the testing and all the prep for this season, especially for this Rolex, you really saw that in a lot of teams where you maybe didn't have pace, but you at least saw that they were of a certain caliber that they could, you know, bounce back from contact or. Uh, penalties or mechanical failures or a, finish.
0: or a spin on the first lap before the race had even started R- do we I'm, even do I'm we looking we at you right
1: know, motorsport do we still even know fully what happened with that did he like make contact with somebody I, else I did think he what
0: has what has come about is that they found out afterwards that there was a failure in the rear suspension which caused the spin uh, I was extremely disappointed because I picked that car to win that class <laughs> Yeah, you
1: uh, you should just stop picking things. I think I've I think I've said this now at least three to four times on this See, uh, you, on this
0: podcast. You say but this, but with the Bathurst with the, my Bathurst picks, they were all like quite on point. They the, the I I almost clean swept the Bathurst picks. So I mean, I know I I, know I had the hometown advantage, so I know what I know, but I don't know anything in America, obviously.
1: Well, right. Yeah. You don't know anything about failures. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> <laughs> like if everybody was successful, this is where they'd end up, but it's just the, the problem of meeting that expectation you put on them. So it's- exactly.
0: Uh, one team that did meet that standard of expectation that we'd put on them were the Cadillac team, Action Express Racing, uh, who took home a one-two victory uh, to take home the win for Cadillac again in the second year of the prototype formula. Um, but it was a bit of a tense finish in the prototype class in the end because you saw, was it the number five, have problems towards the end with overheating over the course of the last four or five hours, and the lap times were dropping out, and all of a sudden you had the number 31 car on the same lap, and then towards the very end of the race, the core Rotor Sport car came onto the lead lap as well, and that for me was super surprising. I, I mean, yeah, they have Loic Duval and uh, Romain Dumas in that car, but core autosport to take a year off to come back and to be immediately on the pace in a prototype oh that's 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 fantastic
1: well okay so first off uh, you know i've got a couple of things okay first off, for core is that it's still an lmp2 oreca so that is still by far the class of any p2 car i i would say still outside of maybe the cadillac but again that would be a dpi Yep. um so it's it's got a complete base chassis that's that's great and for whatever reason the aurica seem to really like come alive in the race um a lot of the aurica chassis even at one point were leading like one, two, three, four, five or for pit stops or something like that so it is it's a solid platform for them to do so by far and away it it is conducive to allowing really good runs if you could do it but that's the thing like i this is i i would say it's un, unexpected for me i didn't think that they would be able to, to to kind of be this forceful of a showing for their first run but i mean the lineup looked great but i i've been a huge fan of colin braun and um he, ever since he was in nascar and i've kind of followed him when he came over to sports cars and he started doing i think gt racing in porsche and then he went to pc LNPC, and started doing that both,
0: both of which with core as well
1: right with core and i, I mean he's he was one of the, you know, the driver, I would say, I think he was one of the driver of the year for LNPC a couple of years or something like that, if they yeah. did do something like that. He, he was definitely one of the better drivers in that class with really no competition, you know, in terms of talent. But um, the lap times he was putting in, and especially again with Loic and Romain, it was just like, that is a, that's a, yeah, that's a platinum caliber lineup, right there. He had there. the fastest.
0: I mean, he had the fastest lap time for that car. He was the qualifying driver, the starting driver, and he had the fastest lap time for that car. That's yeah. serious. That's a serious responsibility that he took on, and he put it all the way to the top. I was seriously impressed. That's a podium. I mean, and then again for their first
1: effort and the way that they did it too. they were they they faced adversity and and just literally by sheer sure force of. I mean. They would have been on the lead lap fighting for the lead had there been the normal, quote-unquote, normal amount of, you know, safety cars or cautions. Yeah. You know, it was only basically by their bad luck that this this is the year that we had to set the, uh, you know, the pace for this. So, but to to kind of have that kind of showing for the first outfit, I think that was, they, they absolutely, out, out the gate are the favorites for me in terms of almost um, rookies or, you know, the rest of's in, in terms of the P2s. I mean, that's such a great storyline, so. Mm.
0: Um, I, I think they could be very much in the same sort of battle with JDC Miller, who last year were very surprising over the second half of the season where they all of a sudden kept popping up at the top. So I feel like Core and JDC Miller Motorsport are going to have a very good battle for the I don't want to say best of the rest, but they're kind of going to be the ones who might snatch a victory here or get a podium there where where they're going to be fighting the likes of Penske or or Wayne Taylor Racing or Action Express or, yeah, those sort of big names. And they're going to be the ones that are going to snatch it up when everything falls apart for them.
1: But note too, though, that the way that the, you know, and I'm a fan of the way the IMSA format is, there's a lot of short distance races and I feel that their opportunities to snatch those kind of wins are diminished when they're at Long Beach or they're at I don't know I mean even Road America is still only uh, two hours or a little over two hours two hours forty five mm. so I mean there's still those opportunities to, to get overall wins I I think is 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 reduced but their ability to you know I would compete for the that Privateers Trophy at the end too or at least to have a good outing and try try to do something there. I really do look for the longer races where they can they can get these podium efforts, and you'll see them be able to kind of get rid of their silver driver early on, and be able to just pretty much go in a pro lineup and go up against a yep. lot of the uh, yep. the factory efforts because that's is, where I see
0: the being with them. Which is what we saw last year at Watkins Glen, especially with JDC Miller in the banana boat. They were really in the hunt. For most of that race, but still, even even the tracks that you'd say are, are maybe a little more European, like Mosport or Lime Rock, even where the the P two chassis really comes alight, uh, JDC Miller was strong at those places last year. So there's no reason to say that a team like Core couldn't be strong there as well.
1: You're right. You're absolutely right. Um, it'll just be interesting to see with the issue of maybe four extra manufacturer chassis that you didn't see, because obviously I don't think Mazda was there. I would think <laughs> it's only one outing, so we've seen Mazda on fire once. So it's one out of one. <laughs> but I've got to imagine that thing can go fast and not be on fire and finish the race. And if it does, the thing's going to be near the front too, uh, same with the Nissans. And I, it's that's just going to be the thing: is how many bullets are you know are you to have to get through in order to get near the front because there's just so many. There's the competition so tough at the point especially with manufacturer involvement.
0: Well, I mean, if you look to the 2016 uh, WEC season, uh, Audi and Toyota and Porsche all had problems in those first two races, and Rebellion came home with two podiums. Admittedly, they didn't get a strong result like that again for the rest of the season, but it's still possible. I mean, these manufacturers aren't infallible. We've seen, yeah, Yost Active on fire already. They had an awful race at Daytona, uh, something that was absolutely un yoast like and the Acuras as well with uh, Team Penske, while they were in the hunt through the middle of the race and they were at times setting the pace, both of them suffered issues that took them out of the hunt at the front. And I mean maybe we won't see that in some of the shorter races, but, you know, Sebring is often said as the most difficult endurance race because of the bumps and because of the, the concrete and all those sort of things. So maybe at Sebring, they could run into issues again. I mean, this is a brand new car. Yes, it's an Orica chassis. It's an Orica platform, but it's still a brand new car that they're coming to terms with. And it, yeah, I, I don't... I don't want to say that they're definitely not going to be in the hunt, but, you know, the, the chance is there. And I think... Of the the race the remaining races if things are going to go wrong it's going to go wrong again at sebring
1: I'd, I'd agree um i at the same time you know i i would say i would reset the 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 board in effect where that yeah there the likelihood you'll have issues will come up but at the same time there's been a lot of testing that's done there and there's just a level of preparation i feel like mm. um you know i i Again, personal biases, I came from him saying LMS, so I'm going to say, I mean, the 12 hours of Sebring, that is, uh, if if Daytona has surpassed it, I'd say Sebring is still more prestigious in that regard. Um, it's more historic. Yeah. Um, the, the the win overall is, is such a huge meaning to them, um, and especially where it plays off of a lot of drivers and team members um, and then specific teams too when they go to Le Mans. It's the prep for Le Mans. It's like the, okay, you've done it here. You know, now go do it at Le Mans, or you've done it at Le Mans, now go do it at Sebring, that kind of stuff. So, um, you know, it's going to be, there's going to be a level of prep that I feel like may take care of some issues. But yeah, I mean, it's Sebring. It's going to beat up even the, it, it beats up Audi, you know, yeah. way back. So Team Yost aren't going to be afraid of that, but I, I definitely feel like we're going to
0: see more, more <laughs> fires, or <more> mechanical failure. <laughs> <laughs> oh, it's, it's just so confident. One of, one of the other things that surprised me a little bit uh, watching the timing screens. so unfortunately I couldn't watch most of the race, uh, was that the international teams didn't really have a lot of firepower to stay up the very top. I mean, you look at okay, you look at the top five, you see United Order Sports and Jackie Chan DC getting into the top five, but neither really were at the front setting the pace and fighting for the win. And if you look further afield, uh, you know, they're the only two that really got to the end without problems. Um, the other uh, United Sport car ran into a lot of issues. Um, I, the other, what, Jackie Chan DC car, where is that? Did that even race? I don't know. Yeah, but I... Yeah, there it is, 15th, with again, with problems. Um, you know, these, these big international teams that we were kind of looking to take the fight up to... The the DPIS and the American guys they they just kind of weren't there. Yeah, it's uh it's tough to
1: call whether or not you know it's a setup thing if they just didn't prep enough or it was just a BOP thing. I mean, I'm a huge proponent of the fact that there really isn't a pro team that's running an international P2 chassis outside of you know the uh you know the privateer entries in in the prototype category. I feel like that is a huge detriment to uh, to the overall class because you are you are by default inhibiting P2s from actually being judged fairly because you are running on diminished lap times and diminished setups. I mean, if you, you want to compare J, uh, JDC to JDC, uh, JCDC racing, I, I bet you the way in form uh, and the way that they go about getting setups and going about sharing and even setups in general are a lot different. And the lap times they can achieve with those setups are a lot different. So, from that aspect, JCDC only had the ro- the Roar to pretty much prep for this. Maybe they nailed their setups, maybe they didn't. But at the same time, maybe that was the first time that uh, really outside of uh, what Petite and a couple other races where you saw pro effort organizations behind a P2 chassis giving it pretty much what you would assume is per- 100% from pro drivers. Yeah. So, to me that that that's that's why it's going but i don't know um but there was definitely times where you had there was pace from the p2 uh, chassis but yeah it wasn't consistent there was definitely it was the intermediate times and just in and out where it had pace but it overall didn't and of uh, course
0: you can't you can't pull the old ed brown trick from 2016 where you'd chuck your am driver in for one lap under caution and get him straight out and go again uh, they changed the rules specifically because of that uh, so it's not like they could get, say, um, will, yeah, it's William Owen uh, in and out of the car, uh, straight away, or Hugo de Salier or those sort of guys who maybe aren't the the top echelon of drivers. They aren't the Alex Brundles, or Paul, uh, kind of Paul De Rester, I guess, former F1 driver that counts, or the Robin Freins, or the uh, Lance Strolls, you know you can't get them straight back in the car because uh, you've got to have that limited, um, sorry, minimum driver time. And it's something something that, that these international teams are always going to run into because they're not just, like, they're not factory supported. They're not just a team which can go out and chuck together a pro lineup. They've got this AM driver who's raced with the team and you're not going to say to a driver like you know William Owen or someone like that to say, you're not going to say to him, look, we're not going to take you to Daytona even though you've won the ELMS championship with us, for example. Um, we're not going to take you to Daytona because you're not a professional. It's like, well, you can't really do that.
1: Right, right. Yeah, and I mean even from the aspects of looking at some of the teams that you'd have favorites, obviously the Cadillac teams were, were were favorites. Um, but all those teams are, are, have been in grand dam. They transitioned to IMSA. They've been here. They've been, they've done full-time pro they're solidified into the championship here. They're not jumping around and doing this for the first time or doing this for the second or third time. They've been in it for a while. And so I think that even gives, you just the inherent advantage of just being able to set the car up to something that you're comfortable with, or you know where you need to be for this specific, um, you know, championship or for what you need to to show, um, you know, at the end of the race. Uh, that's why I, I mean, I, it's not surprising AXR won it. I think, uh, I mean, not controversially, they should have won it last year because I didn't really like the Wayne Taylor move last year, but regardless, uh, that would have been the second two in a row for them. Um, but, uh, yeah, I mean, I it's they they downgraded the engine, which I, I appreciated, but they still are, have the best setup over twenty four hours, and they have the best setup around that track for sure. That car yeah. is set up for Daytona, hundred percent. So, I mean, you know, beyond that, it's it, this isn't showing me anything new, and it's not showing me anything concerning. It's just uh, they they were the best out of the tw- you know twenty four hours. If it was twenty four hours, twenty five, core might have been the best, but uh, you know, again. It's, it's only what you can play with. you gotta, you got to
0: make it to the end of that 24, don't you, Cookie? <laughs> uh, let's move on, let's move on. Um, yeah, interestingly, uh, pretty much no cries about BOP, which I am very happy with, even though the Cadillacs were the strongest. Because, like... Okay, you can say last year that they didn't get it right, and that's fine, because, you know... They had, what, six months? Less than, in fact, to get it all right because all the cars were new and it was a new P2 platform, new DPI cars. Some weren't even ready until the very end of the Raw. So, like, yeah, you can say last year was, like, maybe maybe they didn't get it right. But this time, I feel like, looking at the best lap times, looking at the consistency over the race, the Cadillacs had the best package, but they weren't necessarily bop to have the best package. Um, however... On the GTLM side, there was some questions of BOP uh, giving certain cars an advantage or other cars a disadvantage that, again, I really don't agree with. I mean, yeah, I, I didn't watch the race, I was watching the timing screens, but the the fact that Ford were 1-2 ahead of everyone two laps ahead by the end of the race, I, it doesn't strike me as concerning because of how free-flowing the race was like we were all saying there should be plenty of cautions but there weren't and which means that your inherent pace in the car will get stretched out over that race and the fact that they could run so long to the end meant that they just built on their advantage and built on their advantage and before you know it, there were laps ahead right i mean
1: i like corvette was still on the lead lap with less than a minute to go less than no a minute way. Well, sorry, less than a minute gap with under an hour to go, I think it still was. So 23 hours and, you know, how many, you know, safety car periods there was and they're still on the lead lap. I mean, to me, fine. It could have been closer. It it certainly isn't the closest GTLM finish I've ever seen in my life, but – I don't need to have every single finish be the the next one, like we don't need to keep up one upping every single race. Like it doesn't have to be like that. And again, this didn't scream where Ford was screaming away with it. And then they were just backing off the pace. They were consistently the same around the same pace, you know, issues of the car design and how it's implemented homologation aside. It's a very stable car and a very fast car, especially at Daytona. Yeah. I mean, they have an advantage and if you are if you're not punished for that advantage and the entire race allows you to maintain that advantage you're going to end up winning that race nine times out of ten yeah i mean i had no issues with gtlm even though it ended up being quote, you know a snooze fest in a way yeah, and
0: uh noah's ark sort of thing but in saying that the corvette has is is an old car it's the oldest gtlm car or gte car in the field and it is showing its age now definitely um i was going like
1: mid engine next year by the way ooh
0: yeah i uh,
1: there's there's some spy shots that are continuously being shown that make that car look more like a corvette each each shot i
0: see it's looking it like it's looking like the old like c2 stingray sort of thing where it's got the uh, it's got that big swooping rear end i'm very excited anyway back to back to the um the porsches i was surprised that they struggled so much. This is the second year of their program, and I think one, both of them ended up having issues. But even when they weren't having issues, they weren't really pushing the pace. Like they were kind of like the United Autosports or Jackie Chan DC of the GTLM field. They were kind of there or thereabouts, but not pushing the pace, which surprised me a little bit because even when they were brand new last year, they were still up the very front pushing the pace. One thing that I very much wasn't surprised about, though, were how much BMW struggled, which is what comes along with having a new program, and especially after how uh, troubled the M6 GTLM program was, I wasn't really hoping for much with the new M8, and unfortunately, they had teething issues. They weren't really on the pace, and they kind of they kind of complained about it, which I thought was hilarious in the end. Uh, they had like a full-on... Like press release signed by uh, by IMSA saying, uh, IMSA and BMW are going to work together to give better balance of performance, more equal balance of performance. I was just like, oh, why, why would you go to that length to complain about having a crap car? I mean, yeah, I, I mean, yeah. Oh man, I'm just towing the corporate
1: line here. I mean, I don't see it super as that they were complaining about it. More like they were just reassuring like all of their supporters and sponsors that they were, you know, that they were gonna. They were going to address issues. i like, I just don't see it as a a pace issue either for them. I'm like, what do you... I don't know what the standard expectation of teams are at at this point if they truly expected them to be fully on pace. Now, sure, they might legitimately have been pinged uh, from the roar and that the roar timings were actually legitimate and they shouldn't have done it, but... At the same time, too, they had issues where they were trying to submit the right for the actual height of the car, and they thought they could get it through homologation, and I think some manufacturer vetoed it, so they had to modify it at like the eleventh hour and and whatnot. So, I mean, you know, is that one of the issues of it? Like, I mean, I could just justify that as well. So, the thing though, too, with IMSA is that they allow for a. a, a the you know not the publication, the BOP process to have a final oversight of somebody like it's yep. not fully yep. automated so you do have the ability for these manufacturers to complain and maybe make their case to a human being because yeah human beings are going to make that final adjustment on it so just it's one reason why I wish they go to WC standards, where you remove manufacturer complaints entirely out of the, the process.
0: Well, I mean, on one hand, yes, that oversight is is something that can be uh, like manipulated, perhaps. But we've consistently seen, especially last year, that the GTLM had, and GTD had some of the best balanced performance around the world, even better than the WEC for the 2016 season. Not so much. Uh, sorry, with the with the influx of the um, computerized balance performance for WC, that's now changed. But still, the the reputation of the balance performance in IMSA in recent times has been quite good. And on your comment about the raw times, um, all of the cars from the raw actually had uh, faster times at the raw than they did at Daytona, except for the BMW. Oh, sorry, including the BMWs, but. Um, their, their best time was still a second and a half outside the times of the Fords and the Corvettes. So that doesn't scream to me as this is a BOP issue. That screams to me that this is a car and engineering issue. We've said it before about BOP uh, series. You, It's better to build a car that's over the limit and peg it back than to try and get the balanced performance brakes to make you competitive it's a it's a balanced performance class it's not a free here's a free kick to get you in the game class and i think for example mazda and now bmw are being shown that you have to have the engineering now to be able to make a car that's going to hit the targets instead of getting the targets adjusted to suit your performance
1: yeah
0: i don't really have an issue with any of that good i like that (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> <laughs> but, what, but what this does say is that it doesn't hold the BMW program at least in the short term in good stead and that's a bit worrying for me especially coming to uh, the WEC with the super season if they get stuck in a position where they're going to be dilling, dilly-dallying around at the back that doesn't really show a good advertisement for trying to bring a new manufacturer into the series and have them be competitive uh, which could deter other manufacturers away, which in result could weaken the field. Because of course we, uh, we have recently seen the Le Mans entry list, and GT Le Mans is stacked, stacked and stacked and stacked with cars. And if you start to, if you start to see big differences in their performance, you're gonna be like, well, why do we want to be in this? And I hope that BMW still get it together and get their shit together. Uh, because I don't want to see them pottering around the back of the field. That's not what I want. I, don't
1: think, I, I just don't think they will. I don't think it's in IMSA's best interest to have them sitting in the back of the field, and I don't um, you know, I, I don't sense that there's any plotting from BMW to go, hey, you should, uh, you know, we're slow, give us BOP, and then give it to them, and they go, you know, 800 miles an hour. I don't think that's the case either. Um, you know, I, through different things, I think there was a genuine reason why they were BOP'd after the roar, but it's clear after, uh, you know, after Daytona and for the Sebring tests, you know, IMS is looking at the balanced performance of them and is making adjustments before Sebring coming up. Um, they're still teething this car, I think, as much as as much as BMW is, um, you know, in the relationship between, you know, from in a BOP standpoint between the team and the and the series is that they're both basically trying to figure out this new car and what its capabilities are, how fast it can go and how slow it can go. Actually, yeah, that's a very it- good point. So to me, it just it just seems like IMSA maybe took a wrong step and they took it to an extreme level where you saw the performance difference really on paper for the Rolex. And that definitely hampered BMW and maybe stood out to them going like, hey, you guys really messed up. You just really kind of focus and make sure that we're on it for Sebring. And it looks like they, they did respond with it. So we'll see. But yeah, I mean, it's. That's why I mean again I I like the W C thing. It seemed to work, and we'll see how it works at Spa because I, I have a genuine belief that their BMW is going to show up and be pretty close to everybody else, and of course to Porsche, Aston Martin, Ford. They'll be close you ask at the Spa Martin as well. I think Aston Martin. Well, yeah, I will be I, I generally have right. good faith in in that this uh, auto BOP will work uh, even on the new cars. I mean, I, I like we're working on raw data here. Yep. and the amount of testing that Aston Martin and BMW have done, those, those cars are ready to go already, and we'll we'll know pace by Prologue,
0: which is good because I'm really excited for the Prologue. But we'll talk, we'll save that for later. Um, all right. Last thing, uh, and we'll just go through the results quickly to finish off GTLM. The Fords took one, 2 67 ahead of sixty six, so that was very very exciting for me because Australian winning the race is always a good thing. Uh, then the two Corvettes, three, then four, um, followed by. The lone racey competition-only Ferrari in 5th, a few laps further back, then the 912 followed by the 24 and then the cars that had more extensive problems, 911 and then the 25 further, further back. Very further back for the 25. So, moving on to GTD, now this race, surprisingly, despite the lack of cautions, was still very tight at the end. We've seen in the past for GTD how we've had swarms of cars at the end of the races, partly due to the cautions allowing cars to get back on the lead lap, partly due to the effectiveness of the BOP. But this one in particular, um, to have, I think it was five cars on the lead lap after minimal cautions for the entire race, well... In the end, it was one car in the lead lap because the leader ended up sl- slotting in between the first and second place. But regardless, it was an enthralling race uh, in which any one of about three or four different cars could have won. And it was also a race rife with controversy. Um, do you want to talk about the results or the controversy first? Um, results first. Okay, results first. So, um, in a in a very uh, like landmark event, uh, the Lamborghini GRT uh, Grassa Racing Team took home Lamborghini's first ever 24-hour win in any format, I think. Uh, so this is the team that had come straight from the Dubai 24 hours um, over to the uh, Daytona and took home a win with um, R- uh, Rolf Nijken, Morco Bortolotti, Frank Pereira and Rick Breukers. So a fantastic result for them. A fantastic result for Grasser as well after dominating last year's Blank Pain series. And I think Chris called it as well. Uh, so Chris, when you listen to this, well done. <laughs> I, I, from the lows of of
1: post uh, Daytona of what twenty fourteen to now this, I mean, Lamborghini as a manufacturer has finally kind of they, they, they've they've hit the bottom and hit the top now finally. Yeah. So um congrats on on them finally for yeah it seems insane to me that this is their first kind of like overall 20 not overall but 24 hour class win or like major win in in that regard because even in
0: preventic they haven't quite gotten to that point uh they had gotten close and they were definitely the form team at dubai until they ran into multiple punctures but yeah i think uh, from what i've been hearing what i've seen i think this is the first lamborghini 24 hour race win
1: Oh, yeah, and to me, this is, yeah, it's a, great, it's a great result for them, and I feel like the amount of, like, the Limbos have always been close in IMSA, too, um, and definitely the teams have been solid, but they haven't been standout, and we've just seen, you know, Christina Nilsson and Scuderia Corsa just can take over, rally Motorsports take over, just other teams basically kind of take control of races or championships and that kind of stuff, and you really haven't seen a lot of these endurance races or the, the NAEC races get, you know, dominated or not even dominated, but just even run competitively at the, near the top by these Lambo cars. And to see GRT, um, especially from the outfit, and they've been, you know, with, with IMSA for a long time. um, And And with Lamborghini
0: for a long time now as well. Yes.
1: So this is a, this is a big day for, for all of them. (laughs) It was definitely a big day for all of them. uh, Finally coming across the line for that. Um, But, and at the same breath, too, just given how close that class was, the 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 almost and what ifs, especially from the uh, the acre group, from the uh, uh, Michael Shank Racing. Uh, they had some adversity uh, that morning and basically Catherine Leg almost getting punted or basically getting punted off by a prototype um, down on the international uh, horseshoe and basically almost coming back to win it from that um, with. Uh, uh who else was up there uh, we had two other i think that were really close at the Formula
0: end racing and the riley yeah, motorsports uh amg were there at the end yeah.
1: so i mean you had you had these opportunities for a lot of these teams to to you know basically kind of seize seize the win and it ended up falling right into grt's uh lap in a sense and uh they were able, able to bring home the win so that was a yeah. I mean, really, really just, great fitting win just, for them, I think.
0: Just to give you an idea on the gaps at the end of the race for third position, there was only um, only a second and a half between the Paul Miller Racing uh, Lamborghini and the Mercedes AMG for Riley. Uh, a little further back, you had the the next of the cars, the Ferrari from Scuderia Corsa, but I think it was it was pretty lucky that. Well, I mean, it kind of artificializes the gap having the one lap be the, the final gap because really that one lap was only about 15 seconds at the very end of the race. And remember, this is a race that went massively longer than it ever has before and with very little caution. So this is like 15 seconds at the end of 24 hours without any sort of interruptions is not that much.
1: Absolutely. And at the same time too, um, like they started at the back of the field. they They had was it qualifying or they, they had some issue that they had, they literally started lit, a dead last. They were the last car to pretty much cross the start finish line to start the race. So from that aspect too, um, you know, for them to just is, pretty much pass the entire field, that is about uh, 15
0: seconds from the start of the grid to the back of the grid.
1: Right. So yeah, from, from that amount of time, um, for them to pass space of the entire GTD field, um, just shows pretty much that they earned every single, uh, position that they, that they ended up getting in the end. So, Uh, again, yeah, I, GTD did not disappoint. Um, and it was one of the more close or consistently close, uh, categories throughout the entire, uh, 24 hours. And I
0: think that is going to be something that is said a lot throughout this season.
1: (laughs) I mean, to be honest though, I, I genuinely think Sebring is going to absolutely shock and surprise people in the prototype category. I mean, I do not expect there to be, um, Cadillacs roaming the, the front of the field all the time. Like I, the, I, I just I have a feeling that the way Sebring is going to roll out is entirely different than than Daytona. Um, just with the amount of different strategies that you honestly have to try to come up with, especially at the front of the field with the amount of cars, you've got to try something different. And I just feel like we're going to be seeing a lot of different cars bouncing up and down in that prototype category. And that's not... Again, like that's not even discussing DTLM and GTD,
0: which and if of, both of
1: them are of, good, it's going to be crazy.
0: And of course, how congested the track is at Sebring compared to at Daytona. Because you don't have a, you know, mile and a half of banking to to separate the cars out and to make decent moves. You've got... You, you Bumpy barely, taxiways. Exactly. <laughs> um, just to wrap up... Okay, so we mentioned this at the beginning of the GTD section. So there was... Uh, a mid-race controversy that took everyone by surprise uh, in the fact that the Land Motorsport Audi got penalized a five-minute stop and hold for, and I quote, exceeding the expected performance targets. Um, So we were all very perplexed at this point in the race to try and figure out what they'd exceeded and how they'd exceeded it, had it been something that they'd uh, changed on the car that was out of homologation from the balanced performance perspective or something like that. But what happened is it came to light after the race that the Land Motorsport Audi was able to fill their tank and to go through their pit stops about five to 10 seconds quicker than everyone else uh, throughout the race. So their pit stops were about 30 to 32 seconds versus the general around 40 seconds for a refill that everyone else was doing. They inspected the fuel rig of Land Motorsport after the race, and they found no modifications. It was all within specs. So that perplexed everyone, and there was a bit of witch hunting towards Imsu and the officiating body going, why have you then applied this penalty and ruined the race for Land Motorsport, who at the time were dominating. Let's be real here. That sort of uh, uh, advantage in a pit stop adds up over time, and it definitely was for Land. That's why they were dominating. Exactly. they were running... They were running consistent a lot of times with the rest of the field. It was just
1: their pit stops were outlandishly fast.
0: Well, I mean, they were a, a little faster overall as well. Their fastest lap were right up at the very top of that field. But yeah, that's how they got their advantage. It was definitely through their pit stops. And so everyone was a, a lot confused. Some people got very angry. And I, the what came out afterwards was that the way that they balance, uh, they do the balance performance for the fuel. Uh, mileage is that they put basically they put blockers in the fuel tanks. So they they put either uh, like plastic balls that take up volume, or they they reduce the size of the fuel tank to uh, you know equalize out stint lengths and fuel mileage and that sort of stuff. Um, so what Land had done was they had actually done their research and arranged the uh, blockers or etc in the fuel tank in such a way that it was the minimum uh, resistance or like it enforced the maximum flow from the fuel rig um, which is what allowed them to dump their fuel into the car a lot quicker. Now there is nothing in the rules that says you can't do this there's absolutely nothing in the rules that says you have to meet a specific target of refueling or that you can't adjust the blockers inside the fuel cell to enable faster fueling. What it does say in the um, in the regulations, now I got to I got to go find and quote this properly, otherwise I'm going to be mad at myself. So, um the rule that they actually broke, and I want to want to go find the specific quote. And the specific quote is Rule 2.1 from the BOP section. Um, uh, in order to maintain competitive blah, 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 uh, IMSA may, at its discretion, utilize an adjustment method during each season The BOP. Uh, now, this is the, the follow-on from that. Um, 2.7 says, anything that manipulates the performance or displays a level of performance above or below the expected result in any session maybe penalised to the full extent listed in another article. So what that's that's basically a catch all for Insta to say if we've applied all the BOP correctly and you're still going faster than we think you should be we're going to penalise you and that's where the land motorsport penalty comes in they got put in under, you've gained a consistent advantage in these pit stops over the course of the race, something isn't what we expected, so we're going to penalise you, and that, you know, dropped them two laps down from the lead, and they couldn't gain back gain that back. Do you think that's correct?
1: Um, I mean, there's no win for any of this. Uh, I guess you push a grey area, and for the sake of the class, it would have been an absolute snooze fest, and they would have won on a technicality but we would have called them ingenious for thinking of it, but not necessarily because it's not like it hasn't been done before. A la Benetton nineties and F one. I mean, it's clever. It's not unique. <laughs> I, I almost like if I was going to allow it, I would have give me something unique, you know. But they modified the the box in the car that accepts the fuel, which dumps the fuel in the in the cell faster. Is that was not a part that was ever homologated by the FIA or by the uh, by IMSA. So they had no reason to look at it, but it obviously helped better a, uh, a refuel performance by an insane margin in the car. Um, and it was a huge advantage. I, like I, I don't know. I, I It doesn't seem very fair because they definitely took advantage of something that nobody else did, but it's certainly in the spirit of racing where you push the gray envelope as much as you can. Um, and we always encourage people that if they do that to get away with it a little bit, but then punish them again. So I, I don't know. Um this is like on the, the whole NASCAR like crew chiefs where they put nitrous fuel in their in their cars and get suspended four races for it or something like that at Daytona. I am okay with um the anger towards IMSA for extracting such huge penalty on land that they couldn't win. <sighs> you know it's but... yeah,
0: it's it's there's, there's so many different no, ways that you ha- yeah. can look at it like uh, for right. me, I I hold the opposite opinion. I think that the penalty shouldn't have been given. It's it's a it was a sporting advantage, yes, but it had been something that the team had found a way to improve on faster and further than any other team. And I mean, you have to look at uh, so IMS is a bit weird, where because a lot of the GTD teams uh, are very amateur. It's not like say the GTLM class. Uh, sorry, the GTM class at in the WEC where you've got AMR customer racing and and stuff like that, or Proton, which is basically a pro team that runs AM cars. Um, The, the IMSA GTD category is on occasion, very amateur, but it's the work had been done by land to find this advantage that was within the scope of the balanced performance. And I think that they should have been allowed to, to maintain that. I feel, I feel like it was, like, I feel like you say, well done, you got us for this race. Now we're going to actually modify the rules to say you can't actually do that or you must hit a specific target. That would be that would have been my take, but of course, I'm different from IMSA. The fact that the penalty was applied by that catch-all, we can sort of apply any penalty if you exceed our e- expectations. Okay, you've made that rule specifically to for that reason. Fine, you can penalize cards by that rule. What I didn't like was afterwards how Land went to, to IMSA and said, okay, so you've given us this target of 40 seconds. Can we just, like, hold the car there for 40 seconds each pit stop? And IMSA said, no. like, you've got to be refueling for that 40 seconds. So that, that was what I didn't like. But, like, what what can you do? Um, right. Uh, yeah, I, I don't like the penalty. Um, but then, I mean,
1: how did... how? Did they do anything different for the uh, for the rest of the race? Or, or um, did they have to
0: back they to something? A- they actually had to dose the fuel at a slower rate. So this is taken from the um, Marsha Pruitt uh, article on Racer uh, discussing the land penalty. The land team needed to slow its refueling rate. So the guy who um, controlled the refueling tank shutoff off valve had to change the practice of pulling the lever to, instead of open it maximally, had to, like, partially close it while refuelling. So, that was the only thing that they could do, because, like, they, they IMSA basically said to them, you're not allowed to just stick the hose in and stay there for 40 seconds, you actually have to be refuelling for 40 seconds, or thereabouts. They were the only cars that had to do that, they were the only cars that were pinged for it, because of the other Audis, none of them had put that sort of effort into um, gaining that advantage in the fuel tank yeah. like Magnus Racing hadn't um, and I think they were the only other Audi team that I can remember off the top of my head so yeah
1: I, I'm to the point here, this is it um, yay that they found the advantage um, boo that they didn't put enough effort in to make sure that they covered their asses that's all I can say um, If if you know, so if they, they needed- if they
0: were refueling to say 38 seconds or 37 seconds, do you think that would have been okay? do you think that would have been caught?
1: No, I'm not, I'm not debating the result. I'm debating if you they went in here with a strategy to use this as an advantage, right? They modified this thing when no one else modified it to get more fuel into the into the car. If they're trying to take advantage of a gray area, it's behoo of them to go, if this is going to be looked on, if we're going to get if we're going to actually utilize this and get an advantage of it, then we have to be prepared for the consequences of somebody going, what's going on? Why are they so much faster than everybody else? And the consequences of, uh, of a governing body that is well aware and will put the hammer down on, on anything that isn't BOP correctly, especially when they sat a couple of cars for roar. So to me, I would have been I would have been talking to IMS officials specifically about refueling. I would have been making sure that I have writings, whatever, so that I'm prepared when they come at me during the race because I'm clearly like insane amounts faster in refueling, where they're calling me having a fault, and I say, look we already went over all this stuff in terms of you guys don't have rulings. Yeah. There's no reason for me to come in because we, remember when we discussed this on Thursday or Friday? Now, sure, maybe they had those discussions and conversations, but it certainly seems like that land were on the back foot as soon as they were told to have to stop for five minutes. They were just basically going, well, we didn't, you guys didn't say anything. You guys didn't say anything. It didn't seem like they were going, well, we we, we tried to address this to you and you guys said it was fine. It just seems like they, they went, maybe they won't notice and, and so did notice and made a big hoopla over it. And sure, yeah, we should be upset because there is no regulation on it. But Mm. I certainly feel like land should have maybe covered their ass a bit more because it just certainly seems like this was all just to make IMSA look like an idiot if they were going to get in trouble and they got in trouble. Yeah. So
0: The, the land statement afterwards basically says, they argue that there there wasn't a, a like an average refueling target and like this wasn't a grey area, there was no actual target given, we were refueling the car as per the regulations, we had all the regulated uh, fueling equipment, the tank level was BOP'd correctly, so what we did wasn't necessarily wrong by the letter of the law, and yet you're punishing us anyway. And I'm like, well, in that case, if you want to debate letter of the law, spirit of the law, well, they have this catch-all requirement that says if you exceed any sort of if you exceed the expected result of your performance, then you are going to get punished. And that's what's happened. And I, you know what? I expect now that there will be an actual letter of the law written into um, the IMSA regulations about fuel tanks and refueling times because of this.
1: Yes, there actually is. (laughs) So land statement includes IMSA has stated that moving forward, they will amend the rules to give teams a specific number that will uh, help define the expected result for fueling times. So, it looks like they are going to amend rules giving teams specific, like that will be part of BOP, I guess, moving forward. So,
0: and hey, I don't actually think that's a bad thing. I, this is, you know, this is why we have rule books and regulations and stuff like that. If a team finds a loophole and exploits it, it gives everyone an opportunity to either A, follow on, or B, have it written out of the rules. And it's taken the second option. But, you know, this is the first time that a BOP performance penalty has been implemented mid-race that i can remember like at all
1: it just it just it it's weird to me though i mean you test a part you i mean you put it on your your this is an assembly piece this isn't like you just adjust i mean i guess you do slightly adjust it a little bit but i mean like they're making it sound like this was just this one thing that they just they just flipped a switch and then all of a sudden it just started like feeling more like no there there there's design elements into how you are able to do this so all the while while you're designing and modifying this thing to be better performance what is your entire mindset through this entire thing it's like is this legal or are we going to get this approved like my whole my point is that like if this is genuinely on IMSA and that they are just outlandishly punishing land how is land so incompetent that they didn't realize this is a, a potential race breaker I doubt if they if they knew the consequences of this, they would have showed up with that part. So what was their entire mindset going in with that part, thinking that they were going to get that advantage? And why were they thinking that, that that huge advantage was going to be deemed acceptable? I would have showed up and only gotten half a second faster on my pit stops. It's still half a second faster than everybody else. Still a small incremental advantage that you might not get paid for, but it's certainly not this huge advantage that was so, like, a, a glaringly obvious. I...
0: I th- I think that's the, all I can comment on this. The, I
1: mean, it's, so, it's such a great area that's yeah. hard to, but that's that's all I can say. I
0: think the, uh, the outstandingly obvious part was what really drew people's attention. And I think, yeah, as you said, if it was like a second or half a second, each pit stop, you know, something to gain an advantage, but not to really overblow the, the rest of the field, it might've been a little more subtle. They might've gotten away with it, but right. you know, after that, do you then say, um, do they then keep doing it, and everyone's perplexed as why it lands so quick? I mean, they're quick anyway, but um, but yeah, it's it's all it's all a little it's all a little a little bit grey. Um, there was Good something that I wanted to say. You know what I think would have been the best the best way for Land to have handled this maybe, if they'd gone to IMSA and said, if you arrange the blocks in your fuel tank, you can get faster refueling times. Is that like? Is this something that we can exploit, or is this something that you are going to penalize us for? Or but... are you going to homologate this? Right, have something ready to go. Yeah, you know <laughs> when this
1: happens. That's what I, that's that's all I'm saying. I mean, find that you're you're in trouble. But if you can cover your ass about this, and, and we're almost talking in a legalese standpoint, then do it. I like that. That seems the most weird thing to me. Is that land has just been almost in a reactionary state ever since this penalty has been issued when like if 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 that penalty is legitimate and everything that they're saying is legitimate then they should have had something prepared for this like yeah. it just so like bush league for them to be so on the back foot from everything that's been going on since that penalty was issued on in, in 24-hour race so but again i like hats off to land they're they're a top class outfit they're trying whatever they can to get an advantage um you know did they need the advantage to win? Maybe they didn't even need it. I mean, they were they were well, like you said, they had good pace o- over the course of the race. So, yeah. I, I mean, I don't know. So it's just it's a it's a tough call. But I mean, I'm not going to complain too too hard over that. Which is
0: yeah. I mean, I I disagree with it, but also I'm okay with it happening. Yes. Yeah. It's it's so great that you can't really hold a really strong stance on the issue without. Knowing everything about the issue. If you know everything about the issue, you go, well, Well, okay. I, I can't, yeah, re- I, I don't look really look have an like argument. Tire, right?
1: yeah, yeah. Like, I know nothing about that issue.
0: Yeah. Anyway, uh, that brings us to the end of Daytona, I think. Oh, wait, no. There's still something I wanted to talk about. Continental tires. Continental uh, uh, tires sad, at Daytona. Uh, why do we have to go through this charade again?
1: Cookie, why? Because, um, because IMSA in a in a in a time of weakness didn't have a tire manufacturer. They wanted to have a tire manufacturer and they wanted a certain amount of money, and Michelin wasn't giving it to them. And who else? Is there anybody else that maybe Pirelli? They weren't wanting to give it. No, not Pirelli. Uh, Falcon. And they settled with they settled with this stupid Continental tire company. I don't know. I don't know, man. That that's that's it. And so finally, we have one more stupid year of this, and then we finally go to Michelin's finally and we and we go back to what endurance prototype racing should be yeah and some gt yeah free but-
0: from freaking tire failures and cars that can actually uh, show actual pace so th- this has come to a head again at the 24 hours of daytona because uh, a lot of cars in prototype particularly but also in gtd i think one of the lexuses had a problem as well uh suffered tyre failures coming onto and off of the banking usually right rear tyres which is the car that suffers the impulse of the banking um, coming onto it out of turn well NASCAR 1 so I think it's turn 7 on the international track um, yeah so Wayne Taylor Racing in particular suffered 5 or 6 with uh, most of which with Ranga Vanderzande at the wheel, and basically pulled the car with the with the press release saying, "I cannot put my drivers or my equipment at risk if this is going to keep happening." And it kept happening, and it still does happen because these Continental tires, especially on the prototypes, have been the same tires since the merger. Yeah, um, the same and- tires, the same construction. How do you win a contract to be the lead tire developer of a series and not develop new tires when issues like this arise for five years?
1: Well, not, only, not only that, they like, like, they, like, they're not even sh- like they're not even guilty or they feel bad that they are behind the eight ball. Like I don't expect a, a motorsport tire manufacturer or company not to design a race tire for four years, because that seems stupid because technology evolves in, in like four years. But like, they haven't, they haven't. And they gloated about it. They're like, well, we didn't, we haven't really des- done anything that he says we designed these in 2014 for, you know, uh, for the first year of the MC championship and we, and they were, they were developed for specific parameters and the only reason why these tires are blowing now is because the teams are are exceeding the the specific parameters. You are like, well, 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 the cars are different. The, Absolutely, the cars are different. What what do you mean that the that these printers are like th- these cars are going at pretty much P one esque levels like speeds in the early uh, like in the late two thousands, early like 2010s. So like, I what do you what do you what do you want from like? The technology it's gonna keep advancing and it's gonna require more G forces, more more actual like loads on the tire. So maybe development will work. You mean you know what Michelin does like every year? Like since they've like for the last 25 years that I've no Michelin developing endurance sports car tires. Like I, I like it's it's so stark the, the difference between these like the, these manufacturers of tires and it shows on the track so starkly every time. That you'd think continental would have gone well we don't want to actually be known by endurance racing fans as being an embarrassment maybe we should actually start developing well, well our they are tire.
0: they are now i it, it, like i i don't have a performance car but if i was ever going to buy a performance car i would put michelin tires on it because i've seen consistently throughout my many years of watching endurance racing not just endurance racing also back in the f1 days that michelin tires are just the best tires that you can put on a car yeah yeah i'd, I'd buy that I'd
1: absolutely buy that. Yeah, I mean that's that's what I plan on. I I still got my my uh, my stock treads from the factory uh, from my car, and I plan on my my performance set being Michelin Pilot Sports. <laughs> like I don't I don't need any more convincing than you know petite twenty. Uh, 20- 15 i I don't need any any like i just need to point to those reasons as why and like Uh, even
0: even the like i'll say i said it i'll say it later in this podcast when we talk about bathurst but i met uh paul Dalalana and i had a bit of a chat to him and talking about the differences between daytona and bathurst and the two different cars he was driving the first thing he said to me is the continental tires that we were on at daytona were just awful and so, like when 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 one of the best amateur drivers is saying that these series car uh, these series tires are just crap, then you, you you know you're doing something wrong. And and so
1: right, I mean, how do we even know what? You can almost say that next year is going to be a completely different animal than this year because who knows how the teams, the actual good teams that are that can respond well to these tires, can perform. I mean. How do you know that JCDC wasn't, you know, the favorite, but they couldn't adapt to how awful the Continental tires were? I mean, maybe they backed off on pace, or they were doing other stuff to that. I mean, I, I don't have any specific data to it that, but at the same time, it's definitely clear that there were some teams that were absolutely struggling, either with the because of the way that they set up the car with tire degradation and. Like I don't know how much that might have played into how good those setups ended up being, you know, after two stints, uh, you know. So, yeah, yeah, I I I cannot wait for the swan song of Continental Tire to be over, and we'll move on to Michelin. That's for sure.
0: There is uh, reading um, the SportsCar three six five article, who uh, is sponsored by Continental on this article, uh, just to you know make sure all the biases are covered, Um, right uh the the recommendation was from Continental that the team shouldn't double stint the tires this was after eight failures to the right rear tire throughout the throughout the race that team shouldn't double stint the tires this is the prim- the premier north american endurance race if you're going to try and save time you're going to double stint tires like how do you not get that through we've gone from the daytona prototype mark 3s to a universal dpi platform and we've completely changed the way that these cars react to steering and to aerodynamics and to you know camber changes and all that sort of stuff and yet the tire technology hasn't been able to keep up and i i i I can't wait for the day that we come to daytona next year at the raw and cars are five to six seconds faster because they actually have tires which they can push. Yep. <laughs> and I, I
1: like it's, we, I, it feels weird that we almost have to ask to, to expect that from tire companies. But I mean, I didn't think I had to ask that from Continental. It's just, uh, coming from, especially even the, the, the GTE Pros and the GT Pros, GT2. When you had Falcon and you had Michelin and you had uh, Dunlop, I think, for a bit too. I mean, you had other tire manufacturers that were trying to come in and go like, "Yeah, we we make a better tire because we're doing this." And it was just like, Continental was like, "Yeah, we make a better tire because we just make the tires for a, a championship." And like, oh,
0: and I guess this is one of the things that happens when you get a sole tire constructor for a championship without any competition. I mean. On one hand, you do have a problem of teams partnering with tire companies and, you know, making it impossible for and like building a tire for a specific uh, platform rather and having no one else be able to get near. But on the flip side, you can get situations like this where a manufacturer is just stagnant in how they build the tires and it's just bad for everyone involved. Anyway, I feel like that's uh, that's enough. I feel like that's just a little bit of enough. (laughs) Unless you had anything else you wanted to say
1: something that happened a while uh, now a while ago so i'm uh i've already i've got all my stuff ready to go i'm starting to mail stuff down to my uh florida residency for getting ready for sebring that's nice. going to be in literally a month from now from this recording so we'll, uh, yeah. i'm getting ready for that man and uh yeah it will begin all again it's uh, it feels like racing season again does it, so does
0: it ever still- stop I feel like this is the biggest break between the Bathurst 12 hour and Sebring is the biggest break We're gonna talk Bathurst 12 hour in a second. I'll have Kiwi Chris joining me for that one.
1: Yeah, I'm gonna go eat some cookies I'll see you guys later
0: (laughs) Moving on now to the Bathurst 12 hour and joining me now. I have Kiwi Chris 1709. How are you going Kiwi? Speaking of people who don't make sense. day, (laughs) Flood. What a brilliant way to start (laughs) 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 <laughs> <laughs> oh, this is going to go so well. So, yeah, Bathurst 12 Hour. Why weren't you there again?
2: My brother decided to get married.
0: Oh, uh, that's that's awful. of him. I missed you because I had an awesome time.
2: <laughs> yeah, I, I saw those photos you put up, you bastard. <laughs> uh,
0: yeah, so I'm, I'm just going to tell uh, everyone just a bit about my experience. This is the third year that I've gone to the Bathurst 12 Hour now, and I think this year was the first time I really properly felt like a part of it um the last the last two years I kind of the first year I went it was kind of as an observer being like oh this is cool last year was more like okay what sort of things can I actually do but this year I I really felt like I was a part of the event and part of um making like being there and being in it it was fantastic I like traveling there was awful because you know Travel across Australia is generally just awful, um, but actually being at the event was um, something fantastic. Uh, Walked the track again on Thursday night. Um, we brought along Reddit Worst Night's uh, younger cousin, who had never been to Bathurst before, and seeing his like flabbergasted face as we were walking through like the elbow and up uh, 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 Conrod Straight, and the cutting was just ridiculous. It was much like the first time I was there, wasn't it, Kiwi? Oh, you were, you were awestruck. Mm. And
2: Bathus has that amazing effect on people. If that first time you go, you just go, holy crap, they
0: actually raced here. This is amazing. Yeah, exa- exactly right. Um, and everyone, everyone you
2: speak to who's ever taken someone there for the
0: first time speaks to that experience. And it's just so good to see other people have that exact same experience when they come as well. And it was, yeah, it was really awesome to share that with him and see him experience that for the first time. Yeah, and then racing got underway on well, support categories got underway on the the Friday, um, early in the morning. Uh, we had we didn't have improved production this year, which was a shame. We lied about that, and I'm sorry, but but um, but we had instead we had the radical still. We had uh, the combined sedans, which had a lot of cars from the improved production, and the new class that came in to support was a class called Class N. Oh, sorry, Class S cars, which I loved. Because, well, <laughs> God, half, hey, half of them were Porsches. Yes, yes, they were. <laughs> they were beautiful, beautiful machines. So, class, the Class S was basically like, you could come in and race any car that was produced or sold in Australia from like 1950 through to 1980 or something. And so, the whole front half of the field were just late model, well, like 1978 911s with massively fantastic liveries and whale tail spoilers and... Oh, I was in heaven.
2: <laughs> and there were other cars like Alphas and I think there was a mini there as well. And um
0: there were a few in, Austin old Haley's. Haley's. um Yes, Healy's yeah. but I think my favourite car out of the entire field was not one, but two Di Tommaso Panteras, which were <laughs> yes. awesome. Just the rumble <laughs> as they went past was phenomenal. Uh, God um, love the D Tomatoes. <laughs> God damn it, Kiwi. Um <laughs> yeah. So I, I had a lot of fun watching those. Um, I took a, a fair amount of photos as well, not as much as I had the last two years, but I still got a, quite a good uh, amount of photos that I've still got to go through and upload. Um, but finally, I've got to say um, there were three things um, in the event that I really, really enjoyed this year. Um, firstly, the Midweek Roseport Listeners Collective catch up on the Friday night in town. Um, if anyone who who was there is listening let me know because I really enjoyed meeting all of you and meeting the commentators I met um, uh, Johnny Palmer for the first time had a great conversation with him about how he moved into endurance racing commentary and the trials and tribulations of endurance racing commentary versus something like British GT which he does more often Um, for some reason I ended up talking to John Hindor about NFL I don't know how that happened <laughs> but we were talking about NFL, and it was really, it was really interesting, really weird. But um, but yeah, that was that's something that happened, and um, uh, I also got to talk to, uh, got to meet and talk to Stephen Kilby, uh, one of the writers for Daily Sportscar, oh, yes. and yeah, and so that was where um, he uh, mentioned that I was. The guy who runs the, one of the, oh, sorry, one of the guys who runs the WC Reddit and does all the Mondays in the Mulsanne posts. And he was like, oh, that's you. Awesome. And so we had a nice little chat about that. And on top of that, I actually got recognized by my Twitter handle.
2: (laughs) Oh! Yeah. So there, <laughs> okay,
0: there's, yeah. there's one or two, there's one or two novelty accounts, um, on, uh, that talk like that post about V8 supercars. And one of the pe- people who runs one of them was there. And like after I did a post on Twitter saying it was awesome to meet all these people, they're like, Oh, that's you. I know who you are now. Um, so yeah, that was, <laughs> that was really cool. Um, the next really cool What's thing. The- so, uh, sorry to jump in. The next really cool thing was the Saturday night, uh, Saturday afternoon where I was in the paddock and they had all the drivers come out. And do like a signing session. And that's probably one of my favorite things about the event. Let's be real here. <laughs> <laughs>
2: Just the access you get is phenomenal.
0: Exactly. And it's access to people who aren't used to being that free. Because, like, mm. b- because uh, of course, it's an Australian-based event with a lot of Australian drivers from the V8 supercars. So, they get mobbed. They get absolutely mobbed. But the guys who are internationals, who like, unless you're following GT motorsport, people don't actually know. They're so happy to share their time to share their experience with you. I started, I started the 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 um the signing session up by the WRT pits, uh, talking to Stuart Leonard, uh, Dries Van Thor and uh, Robin Fryens. I just asked them, like, hey. How was that blank pan sprint series final? And Short Leonard and Robert Fiennes are like, yeah, it was a great race. And is like, nah, <laughs> shit, nah, it was awful. <laughs> and then, and then I
2: asked,
0: and then I, and then I asked Dreese about how much crap he gives his brother for winning Le Mans. And Dries was like, nah, there's not a day that I don't go, don't go mention it to him. <laughs>
2: <laughs> and that's just awesome because yeah, this is like a holiday for them. They don't expect to get recognised, and when they do. Exactly. I mean, you've got this I saw this photo of you with the three Porsche guys.
0: Yeah. Um um with uh, that Fred That's an amazing photo. Yeah, Fred Macavicki, Earl Bamber and uh <sighs> is it I think it's uh, Kevin Esch in that photo as well. Yeah, it is. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So, I oh, know sorry, it's Romain Dumas. Oh, uh, yeah, they were just right at the very beginning. People hadn't come over and talked to them yet and I'm just like, "Hey guys, I know who all you are. I'm obsessed with Porsches. Let me take this photo with you." <laughs> <laughs> uh and and yeah it just came out really really well and mm. like i got a I got a chance to talk to bernard schneider again i got tasked for getting a selfie with bernard schneider from airborne on twitter oh, and so i, I did such that. a hard effort i oh. know right um and oh, such a hard task um like I, I there was one particular instance where i was going through the the bentley group because the bentley are actually one of the international teams that do get recognized and I got halfway through, and I'm like, "I'm sorry, I don't, I don't recognize who you are." And he's like, "I'm I'm Jules Gunnan." I'm like, "Oh, that means you won the 88 GT series last year. Congratulations! It's good to see you in a Bentley." And He's like, <laughs> "Oh, thanks." What a said. Yeah, I, it was a really, really cool time. But I think the the best part about that um, that entire thing was the few minutes I spent talking to Paul Dalalana. So um, Oh, and, and and also when I talked to Augusto Fafas, that was hilarious, but I'll ta- get to that in a second. I asked Paul Dallallana <laughs> about uh, how he's, uh, like, I asked him about his plans for the year, and he's like, yeah, we'll probably go and do the WEC again with Aston, uh, but, like... <laughs> this is the worst exit in the world. I know, right? No, but uh, but he, he was just so really like, he's like, yeah, we want to do the WEC again with Aston, but we're not sure about the new car and whether or not we'll get our hands on it. And I asked him about driving the Ferrari at Daytona, and he's like, well, we were on the Conti's, and they're pretty shit. <laughs> but then he's like, "But the Ferrari," and he was just talking about how good the Ferrari was, and uh, and like the fact that because it was so much power in a straight line, he was driving around people like Christopher Meese in the Audis, and they would look over at him and go, "What the fuck?" <laughs> yeah, it was great. <laughs> did you and ask, then, did and, you ask and, the and, important question? Mark? Um. What was the important question? what How how good his car looked this weekend? Yeah. Yeah. I asked him about that, and he's like, no, we had nothing to do with it. Oh. <laughs> yeah. Apparently, uh, some uh, Canadian Audi dealer was like, yeah, we want to sponsor a car, and Paul Delano was like, I guess I can race it. And so, yeah, they basically went out and did that livery for him, but oh, he no. had absolutely no involvement in it. It was amazing. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, there you go. And then finally, to wrap up that uh, talking to Augusto Farfus, who at this point had the fastest lap of the weekend uh, after practice five, I think. And I asked him, I asked him what he thought about the track because, of course, it's his first. It was his first time there. He just like shook his head and said to me, it's f- "Amazing, just absolutely f- amazing." <laughs> uh. And, and, and yeah, you just see the biggest smile on his face, and he he was just absolutely annoyed. I said, have you wiped your name along the wall yet? And he's like, no, don't want to do that. <laughs> so, yeah. That's like um, a Bathurst ritual. Yeah, basically, yes. So, again, I will say to anyone who uh, wants to come down, who, who has thoughts of coming down to, anyone in Australia who has thoughts to come to the Bathurst 12 Hour, do it now because it's it's becoming bigger and bigger and bigger, and you will not get an opportunity to have this much access to people again uh, in the next few years because it's just growing at such a fast rate. It's, it is, it is becoming one of the best international sporting, international GT3 events Mm. with a truly Australian flavor. And like you have the teams like the Mark teams and like some of the more AM teams like Trofeo Motorsport and Objective Racing who were still getting a lot of attention as well because the Australians knew them. And so it was a very sort of even spread of attention. So I really enjoyed that.
2: Yeah. And I think it shows because TV numbers are going up. Attendances are going up. Campsites are selling out now up in the top, mm. and they weren't even being sold to three years ago.
0: We had to set up our canopy for our seats at the top of McPhillamy on Thursday night. Now we legitimately didn't have space. If we left it until Friday, we wouldn't have space.
2: Yeah, and when we and when we were there the first year, we could have stood on Saturday night.
0: Yeah, we did. Yeah, the night before the race, it was yeah. ridiculous. Yeah. Um, one final thing. Uh, is i want to mention the support paddock because the access you get in the support paddock is like you can walk around and like almost touch the cars basically and like if you want to ask questions of the the drivers whatever they're more than happy to do that for you so in the radical cup there is one particular driver called peter patton who just wins everything he's like i I, (laughs) i'm basically going to own the radical cup because like it's never going to leave my house um so between races one and two, we actually went through the support paddock and had a bit of a chat to him. And I was asking him about the, the, the visibility in the car and like, you know, how close can you get to the walls and when you can't see the front, front spitter? And he's like, you can get in if you want. And I'm like, what? What? <laughs> you, you want me to get, to get in? And so, yeah, there I was sitting in the, the number one radical who who's basically won every race at Bathurst for the past three years and being like... <laughs> Yeah, this is pretty sweet. You can't really see over yeah, the that's wheels. That's a little scary. <laughs> yeah,
2: and and that's, a, and that's a good thing about most Australian motorsport. So I was at Sandown a couple of years ago, and I got this in Steve McLaughlin's Audi GT3.
0: Nice. That would be really cool. So yeah, you,
2: you just get that access, but especially at Bathurst,
0: it's just mm. amazing. And yeah. the Bathurst pit is get so open and wide and everything. Yeah. It's just great. Um. So yeah, if you're an Australian who's thinking about going to a GT3 event, go to Bathurst. If you're an international who wants to go on holiday in Australia and watch some racing, come to Bathurst. And if you just love racing, just come to Bathurst. Just get, everyone come to Bathurst. I'll throw a party.
2: And if you remember my family, don't you? If you remember my family, don't you dare get married
0: next year. <laughs> uh. Okay. So we should actually talk a little bit about the racing. Um, as we said in the preview, Bathurst, the 12-hour is one of the unique events where it starts before dawn, and in the morning hours you slowly come into more and more light before you're racing in full, um, in full sunshine towards the end of the day, uh, into into basically the late afternoon. Um, and it was very interesting to see how the different cars sort of evolved over that time. So, um, we saw on the qualifying, the shootout that the BMWs were super, super strong over one lap to the, to the point where people were thinking that they would just run away with the entire event. I mean, Chaz Mostert set a 201 in qualifying in in the shootout, Mm -hmm. I think. Um,
2: 2017, I believe it was.
0: Yeah, which is close to, but not quite the lap record around Bathurst. Still being held by Shane Van Gisbergen, of course, in the McLaren from 2016. And it was looking like that team of uh, Mostert, Farfus, and. Uh, Marco Whitman. Marco Whitman. Marco Whitman. Like, <laughs> they were, it, looked like, it looked like they were going to run away with it. And they did in the morning. Very much in the morning, the BMWs looked super strong and were dominating the early pace setting. But what we saw throughout the day was the pace of the BMWs equalize out to the point where they were beginning to struggle towards the end of the race. Um, so I found that extremely interesting. What I didn't find extremely interesting, mm. though, was the fact that all of the McLarens had problems, and that made me sad, especially the <laughs> number 58, um, which had an engine overheating issue that they still haven't diagnosed so they sent the engine back to McLaren GT in working to sort of figure out what's going on with it. So that made me real mm. sad.
2: Yeah, and that was a real, that was a spectacular shot just to see all the steam and water come out and mm. from the top of the engine. Uh, and I know it got some poor mechanic as well, so I hope he's still not too bad to injured I, from
0: that. I, I think he was mostly okay. Uh, it didn't look like it was anything yeah. too serious. Um. Okay. Good. Yeah. But then
2: the, you got the program one with Scotty McLaughlin just had troubles all day as well.
0: Yeah. It was. It was just like. It was like n- none of the McLarens wanted to last the distance, and it was a bit of a shame because. Well, I mean, there was there was one that was doing mostly okay, and that was the Objective Racing one that got through to the very. Um, very last throws of the race before it had a problem where the starter motor failed and they couldn't start it up again. Yeah. So that it, it finished their race from I think seventh position at the time. Yeah, yeah. Um, but one thing that a lot of people, one thing that surprised me that a lot of people were discussing was driver standards throughout the middle uh, the early part of the race, and it it, it puzzles me a lot because. I didn't necessarily think that anything was exceptionally bad. I think there was one particular moment that people seem to attach in their minds of an example of why the driving standards were bad. And that was the uh, Porsche Carrera cup car, the class B car um, way overshooting the entrance to Griffin's Ben and taking out a Janetta and just like plowing it into the wall. And I mean, yes, I can understand why people would look at that isolated incident and go, that's, Absolutely dumb, and that's stupid. And why are these GT, uh these Carrera Cup cars racing in a GT three event with these GT four cars? Why can't they get out of the way? But it's it's like this is the this is the heart and blood of 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 this event. Uh, yeah. it's, it's really puzzled me. What were your thoughts on that?
2: Yeah. Well, okay. Yes, that incident was bad, and the Porsche driver did cop a five minute penalty for that, but. How many times have we seen V8 Supercar drivers get it wrong to Griffiths?
0: All the time, all, all the time. Exactly, I, I've exactly. seen. Exactly, I've seen Greg Murphy make that mistake. I've seen Craig Lowndes make that mistake. I've seen uh, David Bernard make that mistake spectacularly. One year, there was one year where you basically couldn't keep the car on the road in on, on that corner in 2014. It was. It's. It's a very easy mistake to make because. The corner sucks you in with the with the braking zone, it's uphill. It wants yeah. it, it begs you to take more. And it's especially, incredibly cambered as well. Exactly. And especially at that point in the race because it was immediately after a safety car. So your tires are cold, your brakes are cold, your brains cold as well. Mm. So uh, yeah. I
2: yeah. And that was really apart from another one we'll get to you later, that were the really the only two incidents where you could go, Okay, that driver made it blue. Mm. Um, oh, the the only other issue with driving standards, I think, and this might be more down to driver briefing, is they seem to struggle to understand how to do restarts. But again, that's probably because it's so unique in Australia yeah. how we
0: do that. Yeah, I I would I would agree with that. Uh, we do, particularly in Australia, um, and V8 supercars watchers would know this, uh, have a very particular set of rules about restarting the race. So, like. Once the field's all ordered up, the safety car leaves and you're not allowed to weave, you're not allowed to like balk off the accelerator. You've got to kind of hold a constant pace until the safety car gets in the pits. And for a lot of international guys, that's just not how it's done. So uh, it did cause one or two little issues, but it always does every single year. Um, The only other thing I can think of is Grove's shenanigans where he locked up into the last corner, spun off, went to the gravel, Got recovered and then immediately spun off at hell corner again. <laughs> and I mean, yeah, that was that's funny. That was but, embarrassing. Yeah, it's funny and it's embarrassing, but it could legitimately have happened to anyone. Like hmm. you, you're hot-headed after making a mistake. You want to get back on the road. Your tires are cold. They're covered in gravel. You go with your normal line into the next corner and you spin off again. Like, and
2: if and if and if any amateur driver has got enough credits in the
0: bank, that I'll forgive him for that. The Stephen Grove, absolutely. Uh, Steven Grove is the best Porsche Carrera Cup amateur driver in Australia, by far. There's no yeah. touching him. But yeah, it did spark, although uh, it did spark a interesting conversation on Twitter, especially uh, on a post by Kev- Kelvin Vanderlinder, who was well on the hunt to to win this race towards the end until um, he made a very small mistake coming through the S's trying to pass a slower car, got wired onto the marbles and hit the wall entering the Dipper. Um, which is a you'd call it a rookie mistake. It's a mistake that you wouldn't uh, you wouldn't ever see someone who's had experience at this track making because you you know after the first few times you've you've been here that you can't do that. And he'll grow from that. He won't make that mistake again. And I'd be mm. very surprised if he doesn't come back next year and do a stellar job and put an Audi on the podium. But anyway. Um, okay. Uh, a quick sidebar, I met him, he's really cool. Um, so so it sparked, a, he, he posted something asking whether or not they should remove the lower class cars from the event, whether or not they should remove the Porsches, the Carrera Cup class and the GT4 class and the Invitational class from the event and have it be just GT3 only. And I could no. not be more against <laughs> the idea. I could not be more against the idea. Yeah, it's just, it's just not what this event is about. Uh, I want to hear your thoughts first before I go on a rant, because I'm going to go on a rant.
2: I know you are. Yeah. Um, absolutely not. This
0: a multicast around here, okay, yes, it's tough.
2: It's Bathurst. It's going to be tough. It's concrete everywhere, so you've got to have your wits about you. But it's uniquely Australian. We have those little battlers at the back of the field racing around. You know, we have... GT3 cars. It's a, it's a great mix of cars. I mean, look at the Mark cars. We wouldn't hmm. have those if it's just GT3. Absolutely. And what would the, the Portia Carrera Cup cars do?
0: Yeah. What would the
2: GT4s do?
0: Exactly, exactly. And You can't have one class! Pull your friggin' head in! <sighs> Absolutely right. Absolutely right. And, and Bathurst is different from events, say, like the Nürburgring and like Dubai or like Spa even. Well, definitely not like Spa, because Spa is single class, basically. But at the Nurburgring, you have yes, you have a hundred and something cars, but it's a spread over 25 kilometer track. You've got much more leeway of having time and space for yourself. At Dubai, you have an FIA Grade One circuit. You have acres of runoff uh, to to make mistakes in. But at Bathurst, you don't have that. At Bathurst, it punishes mistakes a lot. Mm. It punishes mistake, it punishes every single little mistake you make because the walls are so close. I don't think there is anywhere in the world that gets raced on the way that Bathurst gets raced on where the walls are so close. And we'll talk a little bit more about that later because it did come up rear its ugly head towards the end of the race, but you know, I there was a quote that I think you posted in our in our chat Kiwi um from Alvaro Parent. Do you remember that one?
2: Oh, yes, that was from his Twitter, I'm pretty
0: sure. Yeah, Um, so Alvaro Parent said, the most important corner on the Bathurst track is the cutting, because if you don't get past traffic by the time you get to the cutting, which is turn four, you are stuck behind a car until at least skyline, and he's absolutely correct. There is no way that you can get a GT3 car around a GT4 or a Carrera Cup car or an Invitational Mark car until you get to skyline because the walls are so close. You have one line through that entire section and yeah, you're going to lose time, but you need to be patient because that's Mm. the only, otherwise you end up with accidents. Yeah. What's what's better?
2: Three seconds lost or three wheels on your wagon?
0: Exactly right. Exactly right. And we, we ran into an issue like that uh, a little later on the race. So the middle part of the race, once we'd gotten through that patch of, safety cars that all that always plagues bathurst let's be real here every single time we race at bathurst there is always a settling in period where there's yellow flags and safety cars where the drivers try to settle into the race and try to get to grips with Mm. the track and get to grips with racing on the track so once we'd settled out of that period about half distance or even a bit earlier than that we had some fantastic racing we had about three and a half hours to four hours without safety cars where strategies were able to come to the fore. You could see the difference between each car's characteristics and you started to see the the race sort of even out and the real competitors come to the fore. And we got to a situation where, I'm trying to remember who was in the lead at this point. It might've been the Manti car or something like that. Who mm-hmm. had, uh, had suddenly become portions? very strong? Yeah, um, the the Grello Porsche. Oh my god, I took so many photos of that car. Um, but <laughs> of course I, you. I'm trying. I'm trying to remember exactly who it was because I'm. I can't really remember. Oh, it was. I, I feel like it was the WRT team and the Bentley and the Sun Energy One Racing, which was really surprising. Actually, at that point, they they had sort of taken the lead, but you had this battle pack in the middle where it was. The uh the second Bentley, the number seventeen, the BMW of Chaz Mostert and the um what's that team called?
2: What, the uh, competition motorsport Porsche? No, no,
0: the the Team Schnitzer. The Team Schnitzer car. And then the, yeah, cra- team, team, and then yeah, the team craft bamboo Porsche. So what what had happened is the strategy is people were on different strategies at that point. They're on different fuel strategies and different tire strategies, and that was beginning to show. And so the Bentley and the Craft Bamboo Porsche had not put new tires on, but the uh, Chaz Moster BMW had put new tires on, and it was getting to the situation where the Bentley was just, be- just beginning to hold up the Craft Bamboo Porsche, but they were both getting caught extremely quickly by Chaz Moster. And I saw this. I saw this happening starting from the very top of the mountain um so so the Bentley had just passed a slower traffic car um over Skyline the Craft Bamboo Porsche was just about to pass that as well and just got held up a little bit and all of a sudden Mostert was right on his tail right on his tail um and they came down through the uh through the S's through the Dipper they all ended up Bunched up together behind a slower class traffic. I think it was the, um, I think it was a the class B Porsche. I think it was the the 997 model, and they all got cramped up together. And Chazmosta has thrown it around the outside to try and gain some position. Tried to put the foot down around the exit of the elbow, Seen the lower class car in his way. Moved across to try and get past him. Clips Kevin Estra in the Craft Bamboo Porsche, who's held held his line on the inside. Uh, which is then uh put him into the back of the Bentley, which is speared to the right, cleaned up the lower class Porsche, and then come back across the track to the left, cleaned up Chasmostet Mostert in the BMW, and uh Kevin has managed to get through, and all of a sudden that was that was the end of their race, that was the end of the Bentley's race, and the end of Chas Mostert's race in the BMW, and it was a, a an incident born out of a little bit of impatience and a little bit of maybe inexperience from Chas um and what what blew my mind about this was that people were trying to blame it on the Porsche and I was like I I don't I don't see how that's possible the only the way that yeah. this incident started is because of traffic in a in a 12 hour race and because of someone trying to push the push the the issue just a little too much and it is just those fine margins and Like they talked to Chaz Mostert afterwards and he's like, yeah, I messed up. We didn't have the straight line speed at the time and I had to do this to try and get like, this was the way I was going to make the move and it didn't come off. And I think the reason it didn't come off is because uh, Mostert, while he has had experience in the BMW, he hasn't been in the top class in a multi-class race in the BMW. He's raced in the Asian Le Mans series where the GT cars are the slowest or he's raced at um, Macau where there's no other classes on track. But I think this particular mm. instance, he was just caught a little out of his depth.
2: Yeah, and that's a totally fair summation. There were people in the Discord, WC Discord during the rush trying to blame the Bentley for it as well. And it's like. Exactly. What? But yeah. But, yeah, but Chess, I mean, they were getting into it. He was getting into the lower class Porsche even up in the skyline. Yeah, and it was. It, it, it I, could was just, I could just tell something was brewing. And. When they got to the elbow, I don't know, Chaz. he just, I mean, there's a reason he got fined for it. He, he's a much better driver than that. Yes, it's an experience, but at the same time, it's not like he's not used to passing traffic in V8 supercars. He does it all the
0: bloody time. <laughs> exactly, all right. Um, so, yeah, it was, a, it was a little disappointing for his race to end like that and for the Bentley's race to end like that because they had been fighting and battling for uh, another another season, basically. They they want this race and mm. they just haven't had the luck to sort of grab it, which is a shame. Yeah. Um, But it was it was a little disappointed to see that because that, that sort of reset everything. And we, as I said, we'd gone through a, a three or four hour period where everything had just been sort of plugging along. It had been proper endurance racing and then that sort of reset everything again. But what that left us with was a enthralling finish where there was at one point nine cars on the lead lap coming into the last few hours. And I was getting very excited at this point because oh. of those cars, of those nine cars, four of them were Porsches, and they had been nowhere mm-hmm. through practice and qualifying. And all of a sudden, they were in the conditions, the tyres the were coming in, they were really working well. And more importantly, at that point, the fuel mileage for the Porsches were really beginning to show uh, how they could gain up time. And uh, to set the scene, there was... There was, I think, uh, a few other cars on the lead lap. They had the, the Audi Sport Team WRT car of Friends Leonard and Dries Vanthorpe. Sun Energy one racing car was still in the mix as well. Um, uh, Stracker Racing was there or thereabouts. The Objective Racing uh, McLaren was there or thereabouts. Um, and even they had just one or two cars just a lap off the pace as well um, with Trofeo Motorsport and uh, the SRM uh, BMW team in the mix. And and we were coming right up to the very end of the race, and it was looking like it was getting, it was
2: getting tasty. It was getting it was real getting tasty, really tasty. The, yeah. the
0: the strategies were converging. It was looking like uh, potentially the Kraft Bamboo car would be able to get to the finish on fuel, whereas the two cars ahead of it, the uh, the WIT Audi and the Sun Energy One uh, Mercedes, might were definitely not. Um, But they were also contending with the competition motorsports and the Black Swan cars behind them. The Black Swan car was fuel to the finish, definitely. But the competition motorsport car had a lot more pace, and Manti had come in and put on new tires and were chasing down the field. So it was looking like there was looking like the potential of a Porsche one two three four. And I had the biggest grin on my face at this point because I was like, (laughs) Porsche one two three four. I could legitimately clean sweep the fantasy WEC competition as well at that point. I was loving life. I was absolutely loving life, and then and then things got a bit scary.
2: Yeah. Um, if you haven't seen this incident, it'll be on YouTube.
0: Yeah, I would say I would suggest it's, uh... pause now and go watch this incident on YouTube. Mm-hmm. It happens at about twenty-five minutes or twenty minutes left in the race, and we don't want to spoil it for you. We'll give you a few seconds to go have a look at that. And, and okay, for those who don't have access to uh, visual, we'll, we'll give you a brief, brief description now. So coming into McPhillamy Park, uh, the very top of the mountain, it looks like, I'm not sure whether it was two independent accidents or an accident caused by someone trying to be somewhere that they shouldn't have been, but the number um, number 69 Superbarn uh, Audi, uh, Audi R8 of the AM team, of driven by um, Ash Walsh at this, this point in time, had uh, spun out along with the number 93 Mark car. So the Mark car. Yeah, he
2: was actually trying to pass the Mark car. I
0: okay, mean, so, so so it looks like there might have been contact there. So again, something that you shouldn't be doing at that point in the race, at that at that point in the track as well. So, the Mark car hit the wall at Metal Great, slid over the top of the mound at McPhillamy and kind of came to the rest on the exit of the entrance to McPhillamy, if that makes sense. But the number 69 car hit the wall a lot earlier and ended up being stranded across Metal Great on the racing line. Um, now, there was about six or seven seconds um, in which a few cars had just managed to sneak past the, the stranded Audi. But at this point... The number, I think it was the number, what car was it? It was the Breath car.
2: Yeah, 19.
0: The number 19 Mercedes came around the corner and saw the car online, tried to get out of it, slid and uh, hit the front half of the Audi with the rear half of the Mercedes and caused a massive accident um, in which I think Ash Walsh was, uh, suffered a few minor injuries. Um
2: a couple of cracked ribs, yeah, similar to what he had when he when he had the
0: prototype accident at the island, actually. Exactly, um, and there was three cars on the track at the fastest, most committed part of the track, and it was it was not a pretty sight to see. But at least I can, at least we can say that all the drivers got away relatively unscathed. Yeah. Um,
2: and the, and V eight supercar driver uh, fans will remember Mark Porter's accident. It was yeah, very similar. Very, here.
0: very so, similar, but I know the key difference. I think with this is that mm. um, the drivers are seated on the opposite side of the car, and that was yeah, probably something. That was I mean, a really massive saving grace. Yeah, race. Um But that threw up a few a few issues towards the end of the race. So, firstly, I, as soon as I saw that accident, I'm like, okay, this is getting red flag. That's the end because. Yes. I've I've seen enough racing, yeah. I've seen enough racing at Bathurst to know that you can't clean up that that all that quickly. And the way that they had to extract Ash Walsh as well, who was r- clearly suffering in some distress, um, and so like immediately like okay, that's the end of the race. Now, endurance racing fans would know that that's basically part of the course. You go until the end of the twelve hours, and that no matter what happens at the end of the twelve hours, you call the race there. Um, a lot of the V8 Supercar fans, a lot of the Australian fans were like oh they should try and extend the race to get another few laps in and it like mm, no no they shouldn't that's not uh, how racing works exactly i mean it's it, and i mean the last time we saw V8 Supercars try and do that it was as ta- at Tasmania last year and it was a that <laughs> a fast. shit show exactly so yeah. let's not do that um the second issue was that it drummed up a fair amount of discussion and or um, disbelief, I guess, at the the fact that a. Accident like that could happen at at Bathurst at a at a proper GT three race, and there was, was there was questions about like the marshalling, like were there yellow flags, were there um like appropriate caution to the drivers, were the drivers going too fast, were the drivers not respecting the, the the track, um, uh, do we need better driving standards to avoid this sort of accident? Do we need to change the the track to avoid this sort of accident? What can we do and it was, it was very interesting to see the reaction from the international watchers of this event, uh, towards how this entire thing panned out, and I'm, I I think it's it's something that someone who hasn't seen a lot of racing at Bathurst just does won't quite understand about the track because it's it's a unique challenge and like as I said earlier, mm. it, it punishes mistakes and it punishes them in big ways and the fact that you know, we have this mythical corner called Metal Great where everyone knows there is going to be an accident at no matter what series or race or weekend you're at. it, it is it is something that um that you and I, as as V8 Supercars watchers and Australian motorsport fans would know very intimately, but something that a lot of other people may not.
2: Yeah, um, and the challenges with that track, well, with that part of the track especially, it's blind as all hell. You can't see anything until it's too late. So if there isn't there, you're basically going you're going to hit it. Hmm. Martialing there is a tough challenge because you can't see bugger all as well. Um, so those people who are, like, hating on the marshal, saying, ha, what, it takes so long to get yellow flags out, they can jog on because – and it was only what six seconds from the initial crash to so it Mark was something was like that. People,
0: people were exaggerating, saying it was 10, 15 seconds, mm. but like it was, it was five or six. It wasn't that long. Um, mm.
2: And let's not forget, these marshals are volunteers. They do the absolute best job they can, and we and shouldn't that, be lambasting them for something they may not have any control over in the
0: first place. And not only that, they are they're volu- Yes, they are volunteers. They are trained for this. So I, mm. I'm kind of a bit uh, about giving them an excuse. But on top of that, these guys are human as well. They don't get to sit yeah. out of the car. They don't get to have a break. They're there for the entire 12 hours. So at this point in the race, they would be feeling it because it's a, it's a long day. You got to get, up, you, you gotta get up at 4.30 to get to this race. And if you're a marshal, you'd probably be getting, up, be getting up at 3 to be, be ready for the race. And at this mm. point, this was 5.30 in the evening. It's it's a long day. Um, but yeah, yeah, everything everything you said there is entirely correct. The the thing I want to absolutely focus on is the visibility there. You said it yourself; it's blind. I want to I want to try and uh, express how sort of blind it is because it's not really something you can sort of see even with an onboard lap or something like that. It's once you get in the bottom of Reed Park there, so this is the corner coming into Metal Great. You're basically a story and a half, or something, something to that extent, below the apex. So I, I that's one of my favourite spots to take pictures because there's a perfect gap in the in the catch fencing. You've got a perfect angle towards the um towards where the cars are. But where I'm standing taking pictures, the cars are hitting the apex a meter and a half above my head. Yeah, <laughs> and so so that's so not only do you have to contend with the corner itself being blind and being surrounded by concrete walls, but it's also extremely uphill and you're committed at that point. You're just breathing off the throttle. It is 200 kilometers per hour. You are committed. If you don't don't have any sort of indication, even if you do, the only Marshall Post that you can see between that section is one to the very extreme outside of you at that point. And if you miss that, and it's very easy to miss when you're trying to nail one of the hardest corners in Australian motorsport, it's you don't you don't have that time you absolutely don't have that time i think mm. that in order for someone to actually be capable of slowing down the car and getting to a safe uh, getting to a position where they can safely navigate an accident at McPhillamy park at metal great you need to be around the cutting when this accident happens yes
2: yes just because you you're on full i guess full attack mode from the cutting if something's going down you don't you just don't have the time to react exactly
0: and it is a a unique challenge for the people who are in charge of ensuring the safety of the drivers because you it, it's it's not something that anywhere else in Australia or anywhere else potentially in the world has it's not like the Nürburgring where you've got marshal posts every X metres and you've got a gla- grass clearance on either side and even when it's blind at the Nürburgring um, you've still got. I would. I would argue that you've still got a little bit more time to make decisions than you do at Bathurst. How uh, would you? Would you agree? Yeah. I
2: yeah. would, especially because if there is an incident, you're generally doing 80k's up to it. Mm. We well, you, um, you can't have a four-course yellow system at a place like Bathurst no. because there's nowhere to get around an accident.
0: No. Um, it's it is a unique challenge and. Mm. I, I I think the we, there there is systems in place. There is a like a yellow a yellow light system, um, which works very well coming down from the uh, coming down over Skyline through the S's. But I'm not sure I'm not sure how effective that would be for for McPhillamy Park. It's it's a very confusing issue. It's something that would have been very distressing for a lot of people to have seen because it's not an accident that violent doesn't come along every single day. And we we had two happen that race as well. There was another incident earlier in the race where um, a driver was airlifted to hospital after getting extracted from the car because uh, they just hit the wall there and it's a place which crunches cars. It's not a a good place to hit the wall. Mm. I want to have a perfect solution, but I don't. And one thing you absolutely can't do is you can't move that wall. No, either side.
2: For two reasons. One, if you're moving the outside wall, that's a
0: hell of a lot of earthworks.
2: And two, people will just use that runoff anyway as part of the track. Yep. Given give him leeway on the outside, that part of the track, they're just going to take it.
0: Exactly. And on top of that, if you move that wall, you are destroying the character of the track. Oh, God, yeah. Absolutely. The only modifications that have happened to the Bathurst track in terms of the actual track itself and runoff and all that sort of stuff is they made the chase when they wouldn't be FIA accredited anymore, which is the same reason why Lemon has the Moussaint Chicanes, and they put a gravel tap on the exit of McPhillamy. But even then, they did that for um, crowd safety and driver safety uh, mm. more than... Uh, but then but then you could make the same argument for McPhillamy, but if you make... The- yeah, but the thing is, the thing is the way they the made it... in the
2: chase. It's added to the character of the track.
0: Yeah, that's true, but, the, but with, Mc, with the exit of McPhillamy, the gravel trap there—that's almost added to the um, added to the difficulty because they haven't paved it. It's all just grass and gravel. So yeah, I don't—I I, really—I don't have a solution. I think the only way you can have a solution is to have an automated light system that you can trigger all the way down through Reed Park and McPhillamy Park. Because if an accident—okay, so if an accident happens at McPhillamy Park and you are at Reed Park, if you're coming over the change of direction, there's no way you're going to avoid it. And it was very lucky mm. that the people who were immediately behind that did. But, yeah, I don't know. It's it's kind of like the O the Rouge problem at Spa, where if you hit the tyre barrier at the top of Eau Rouge, you kind of get sprung back onto the track, which we've seen happen before. But, but what do you do? You can't really move the O the Rouge embankment back any further. So <laughs> No. No, th-
2: there's very little you can do. Um... I mean, tire bundle, no, because it's going to put you in the track further. Moving the wall, no. The light system, yes, but you need to have it far enough down the track that it's not going to be in it, that they're going to have time to react. Yeah. The other thing you could do is make it a permanent ADK zone from the cut into the other.
0: No. you'll Get
2: out. <laughs> but, you know, honestly, there's no there's no easy fix for this. I'm glad I'm not making the decisions.
0: Yeah. And I think... That's yeah. That, that's that's all I can really say about the incident. It, it's not something that I like seeing. It's not something that I ever want to see. But it's something that when you race at this track, you have to be prepared to take on that mm. risk.
2: Oh well, well, let's not forget. I'm looking at my Adelaide 500 ticket that I'm selling, and it says on the back, the risks associated with attending a press of and motor motor activities include colliding with motor vehicles, and dangerousness and being. Caught in accidents and hurting yourself.
0: Yeah, motorsport is dangerous.
2: It's dangerous.
0: Yeah, and honestly, I think it's. This is going to sound. This is going to sound very, uh, like, very controversial. But take me in context here. I think it's good that we get a reminder every now and then that motorsport is dangerous, and I think that mm-hmm. in this particular instance, it was good that nothing serious went wrong. At, despite well sorry given how violent the accident was but on the flip side i prefer watching races at places like bathurst to watching races somewhere like shanghai because you get punished for your mistakes it brutally punishes you for mistakes they've done everything they can to make it safe but it's it's something that really shows how difficult motorsport is Mm. and i don't as i said go ahead sorry
2: I was going to say, and you don't want to do half ass solutions like the Halo or things like that. Yeah. If you are going to have safety in price, you want it to be proper safety measures that will actually make a difference, not just when they dressing.
0: Yeah. And as I said, I don't like seeing this. I don't want to see this, but I am, as a motorsport fan, you have to be prepared to, on occasion, see something that is going to going to be distressing and yeah it was i was i was literally 100 meters down the track i saw that accident happen in front of my eyes it wasn't it wasn't pretty it wasn't pretty at all but that's that's bathurst and that's motor racing anyway i think that's all we can say about that yeah to wrap it up um what that meant the red flag meant that the two cars at the front of the field who had fuel problems uh didn't have problems anymore so congratulations to wrt their first uh, appearance at Mount Panorama, um, taking with them their first win. A uh, win for Audi, which hasn't happened in a few years. Um, and another thing that Dries can hang over Lawrence's head. Now
2: <laughs> yeah, All he's got to do is finish the race upside down. Uh,
0: yeah, and then he'll have the full trifecta. Um, yeah. A fantastic story for Kenny Haboul in the Sun Energy 1 racing Mercedes. Uh, if For those who don't know, um, Kenny Haboul started his quote-unquote racing career uh (laughs) by sweeping the garages the hrt garages um for peter brock in the 70s oh really yeah that's that's how he that uh, he was he was talking about that all weekend and i actually ran into ran into him in the paddock and i said what's it like coming from daytona to here and was like it was absolute hell but I wouldn't want to be anywhere else in the world. And I think this is his first this is I think this is his first competitive race at Bathurst and for him to go along and be in a car that finished second, I think that's a phenomenal achievement and he I mean, he was very emotional on the podium. It, you could see yeah. it meant an absolute lot to him. So congratulations to Kenny Hibble. Um, I mean, it,
2: it did help that he was able to get most of his drive time in under yellow flag, but even so...
0: Hey, that's the strategy if you've got an AM driver and a pro-pro car. Exactly. Absolutely. Exactly. And the third-place finisher was a little bit... There was a little bit of confusion. So the third-place finisher on the grid... or well, sorry, on on over the line was the Craft Bamboo Racing Porsche. However, um, due to a transponder issue or something like that, it had appeared that they had overdone their drive time for Lawrence Vantor by four minutes. Um, Because of that, they received a 30-second penalty, dropping them from third to fifth, and promoting the Black Swan Racing uh, Porsche, the beautiful green and black car, up into third. Uh, So um, Tim Pappas and uh, Lucas Stoltz uh, and Jerome Boikumola and Mark Leap have a Bathurst 12-hour podium, and it was... It was cool. It was really cool to see that because I like mm. I talked to them in the paddock and they were so rapt to be here. And I'm like, "You got to come again next year." I just love taking photos of your car. And he's like, "Yeah, we'll do that definitely." Um, <laughs> and
2: it's just amazing to see these international teams coming over, um, especially right? long, I love just to see Australian stories. Black Swan, first time third. Sun Energy, yeah. first time second. Audi, first time winning it.
0: And like you've got. You know, you had teams like Manti here. Olaf Manti was at the race. I saw him. It was kind of s- scary. I was a bit speechless. <laughs> um, Stracker Racing was here. The fact that you have these international teams, I said it in the preview, the fact that you have these international teams coming to Australia to grace this event is... It's its amazing in every single sense of the word. I can't i can't actually believe it. I was, coming, I was walking up and down the paddock going, these are people I've only ever seen on TV and only ever expected to see on TV. It's kind of it's kind of <laughs> crazy. Um, to run yeah. through one through run through some of the other classes. Um, Black Swan Racing also took home the Pro Am uh win ahead of Competition Motorsports. Yeah. Um, the third place in that was the Straker Racing car of uh Ventus Williamson Funarelli, and uh, Cameron Waters, who was drafted into that car. Um,
2: yeah, and good on and good on the They had such a terrible time with the other car, but. Good on them to finishing podium in that class.
0: Yep, they stuck with it, and it was uh, it was uh, a, a deserved result in the end. Um, the mm-hmm. 69 car that started the uh, accident up at McPhillamy, uh, once they went back on the countback, uh, won the AM-AM class. And I'm like, I'm a little ambivalent to that. On one hand, yes, they absolutely dominated; they won that by two laps and didn't ever really look troubled. But on the flip side. They did cause a red flag to end the race. Uh, Mm -hmm. um, Class B was won by Grove Motorsport. Like, we knew that was going to happen. Class I wasn't as comfortable. No, it wasn't, but it was still pretty comfortable. They won by three laps Mm. in the end, um, even with their problems with one of their drivers being sick and the spins that they had. But they still still were quite comfortable. Mm Mm-hmm. They won that over Wall Racing, the, the team from America. Um, so that was pretty cool to see. I oh, thought that'd be good. Yeah, you weren't wrong. Um, the 91 Mark Cars Australia car won the Invitational Class. That was the car that I said would definitely be a shoe in. <laughs> so, <laughs> And
2: you, and while, while we're talking about that, I said that'd be GT4 pace, but their pace even surprised me.
0: Yeah, they almost were the best cars outside of GT3. It was yeah. phenomenal, and the way that they sounded and the way that they looked. You're going to see a lot more of these smart cars around. Mm. Um, and finally... just hope like they sorted out the
2: issues about catching fire and whatnot.
0: Yeah, that was not pretty. And finally, in a phenomenal story, uh, I think one of the stories of the race that may have flown under the radar, the C class winners, the GT4 class, uh, was won by the Boatworks Racing BMW GT uh, GT4. With Matthew Brabham, Aaron Seaton, and announcing his retirement r- mid-race, Tony Longhurst, and <laughs> for an Austral- for Australian fans, those three names hold very, very deep stead in Australian motorsport, and yeah. especially Longhurst. And for him to go out uh, of racing with a win in the Bathurst Twelve Hour in in class, admittedly, but still, it's it's a fantastic story. And it- so when close- you
2: when you're a million years old, you take a class win.
0: Absolutely, and it closes a very good, uh, very good chapter of Australian motorsport with his um, yeah. with his retirement. Um, he'll he'll be
2: next to the hall of fame. Yeah,
0: yeah. I I hundred percent believe that. Um, mm. And that sort of wraps up the event. Were there any other things that you wanted to to talk about or mention quickly?
2: No, just it's just a shame there were so many safety cars this year, but it's bestest you're going to get that.
0: It's still still Bring not next year. still not as many as there were in 2014. And honestly, once we actually got past that safety car mess in the middle of the race, it was it was a perfect endurance race. I'm I had no I had no problems with it. Indeed. Thank you very much, Kiwi. Thank you very much for participating. No problem, mate. have to play balls. Yeah, and hopefully I will see you at the track next year, and not just be talking to you about it.
2: It'd be nice, even if I have to walk up there. I'll go now.
0: Yes, do it. Because I would walk 500... I'm going to stop now. My... Um,
2: anyway. And I would walk 500 more.
0: And that's Kiwi getting muted. That's Kiwi getting muted. <laughs> and on that note, thank you very much for listening. I uh, hope you've enjoyed us wrapping up the Daytona 24 hour and the Bathurst 12 hour. We will be back very, very soon previewing the Sebring 12-hour and looking at the WEC and ELMS season launch announcements and what all the news have come out from that. Uh, Thank you for listening. Thank you very much again, Kiwi. Thank you to uh, whoever was in the first half as well. And yeah, uh, that's it. Thank you. (laughs)
1: I- where I- people are getting comfortable with their lack of knowledge and things and just going, well, I feel like I- I know everything now, so let me just mount my opinion on whatever stupid, like, mountain I want to. And there we go.
0: Ah, stupid. Just so that way you know, I recorded all of that. This is gonna be brilliant. (laughs) Record a mini-episode. Cookies rant. Should just be. It should- it, it should just be an episode of just, like, you basically
1: doing, like, a fireside narrating chat. This, like- a little, little jazz music, just softly playing in the background, and just go like, and this was uh, on the uh, episode two oh five.
0: This is Cookie's rant and from from the Alonso. Yeah,
1: right. Yeah, like flipping up like you could just hear the the, the hands turning of a page, you know, and just like reading, you know, and then it goes into another rant. Right, right, exactly. This is so, perfect. So, so perfect.
0: Just like, uh, so just like, and on this day. We were talking exactly. about the yeah. Alonzo uh, debate, and here's right. what Cookie had to say.